Hello, church. We have such a task laid ahead of us to study the book of Job during a very trying time in our personal and national history, but also as Fourth Avenue begins its sputtering restarts. And we had a great Sunday last Sunday. We had two services. We're going to do that again this coming Sunday. The sermons by necessity are chopped down to about 15 minutes there. And that means that covering the book of Job is quite tough. So please remember that this will be here this week. If we can get the live streaming down, well, then we're going to find another forum to give you further exposition. In other words, every week there'll be a 15-minute or so recap of what we were supposed to read in Job and any application that might be able to be made. And then after we're all able to come together, we'll certainly go back into a class format where I can do Job. In the meantime, I might actually record a class of just me talking for 45 minutes on each section. Why don't you let your, your church leaders, your group leaders, or just email in and let us know if that sounds okay for you for now. When the live streaming is nailed, we'll no longer duplicate all that effort by making an online lesson. But remember that the live streaming, although it airs live, hence the name, will be recorded as soon as we hit the end button. And therefore, that will be an online complete service every single week for those of our members who are far flung. Because we know a lot of folk have a hard time finding a church home. We invite anybody around the world to be a member at Fourth Avenue, but still to do good and to do uh, charitable deeds where you are. You can find out more about that by emailing the office. A very difficult thing about the book of Job is getting people just to hang in there when the answers are very slow in coming. In fact, they're not forthcoming. If we're, if we're very honest, the book of Job is all about the problem of suffering, but the book of Job does not attempt to answer it. It completely builds the field. It shows you where the borderlands are, but it also shows you that we are creatures. It's not as if we have not been warned, even in the New Testament, that this is going to be the norm, that we were going to be involved in things, and things are going to happen to us that seem to have no earthly explanation and no benefit. You know, why would this happen? What is important about this? I mean, C.S. Lewis tried very hard, and he said, we always seem to think that pain and suffering is not good for us, but what if it is? What if it is good for us about, and it'll prepare us for something yet to come? We don't know what that yet to come might be. Uh, it, Jesus said something about, if you're faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many. And uh, that's just a very difficult passage to understand. What we do know is that this life is not the end all. This is not our alpha and omega. There's a, there's a continuance. So what happens here? may not be visible to the eyes that we have. That said, in 2 Corinthians, um, if you remember in, in chapter 5 and verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. And Hebrews talks about this as well in Hebrews 10.38, that the just will live by faith. This is, this is really hard for us because we don't mind living by faith as long as the lights are on. And I'm saying we, because I'm right there with you. Please don't feel like I'm stepping on your toes there. 
I step on my toes every time I crack open the Bible. We have a struggle between what we know we say, like the just live by faith and we'll understand it all by and by. Farther along is one of my favorite of the old hymns. That's very true. And at the same time, a great deal of frustration that we don't understand it now. I get that. I do. God does too. Uh, we were designed to call out for justice. We were designed to call out for more. We were designed to call out for God. We know we need God. And so again, C.S. Lewis would have said that's one of the reasons we have for even believing in God in the first place is we know that something is very, very wrong on earth. And we know that a great, great power lies behind the universe. So the question is, what is the power doing about the evil and the wrong on the world? Or what does he have to do with it at all? And then we hit the book of Job. In the book of Job last week, he had just finished his speech in chapters 6 and 7 using sarcasm, parody, mythology. And he ends it with a very plaintive plea in Job chapter 7 and verse 20 and 21. Talking directly to God, he says, If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men, that you have made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. Job did not have a consistent concept of, of living on beyond death. There are times there's little flashes of this and sometimes even a little bit of more sustained flash of this in his book, but he doesn't know. He doesn't have the material that you and I have. And so he, he looks at God and he goes, am, am I annoying you? Am I, am I just in your way? But then he also will tell God more than once in a book, when I'm gone, you're going to come looking for a good buddy like me and not be able to find me because I'm just dust now. Why don't you be good buddies with me since I want to be good buddies with you? Of course, Jesus comes and many things changes, but let's not get ahead of ourselves because that's reading beyond the book. This is all too much for one of his friends, Bildad. Don't be a Bildad. You should make a t-shirt. Don't be a Bildad. He rises to speak and he will not be as gentle as Eliphaz, starting at verse 2. How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you'll look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will be your future. Oh, he goes on. Before you judge Bildad too harshly, you can judge him a little bit and then back out of it and say you're sorry. But uh, before you get too hard on note, he's still saying what's said by church people every day in, in two aspects. One, he says that, um, you know, what are you doing? You're a horrible, horrible person. And because I love you, I must tell you, you're a horrible, horrible person and repent and God will be good to you again. I get those emails I, I get those challenges when I go to speak somewhere. Remember back in the days when we used to be able to travel from town to town? That was a good time, wasn't it? Anyway, I go to another place I'm speaking, 
And uh, somebody will come up to me and say, we hear you do this at fourth. We hear you're like this at fourth. Or we, we, I heard you say in a sermon such and such place. And I'm always hoping, quote me correctly so I can defend it. And, and most of the time to do. And oh my goodness, I have been called every name in the book. I have been blamed for everything. And then they will wrap it up with, I'm only doing this because I love you. Well, quit loving me. That's Bildad love. Nobody needs Bildad love. Put that on a t-shirt too. Nobody needs Bildad love. Well, Job certainly doesn't. There's another aspect here. He does. By the way, did you notice the horrible insult to the children? You know, they're dead because they sinned. Learn from the dead children. This guy should not get into the mental health field, except as a patient. He also says, if you repent, oh my goodness, you will not believe how many, uh, the storehouses of heaven will open over your head. Oh, the prosperity gospel. You ever heard of it? It's a perversion. It's a blasphemy. But it's taught all over the world. It is caught on in huge sections of America Africa, uh, the the Asian subcontinent, it doesn't seem to be doing much business in other places. But in those three areas, it has taken on, well, no, Central and South America. Got to remember, it's, take, it's taking hold there. And the idea is, hey, if you send me a preacher for the Almighty God, 50 bucks, God's going to bless you so much more than 50 bucks worth. You might open your mail tomorrow and somebody, an anonymous person just mails you 500 bucks, no reason. And it is constant. They, count, they will they'll keep pushing their people. If you just get a little better, if you just get a little better, oh, my goodness, you'll not be able to hold all the britches. It's sinful. It's, it's evil. It's evil on every single aspect. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. But it masquerades as the gospel of Christ. And Bildad doesn't even know Christ, never heard of Christ. He hasn't heard of much, frankly. Not, none of them have. And yet he's got that prosperity gospel already cranking in his head. Bildad is relying, underline this in your head if you could, Bildad is relying upon the widespread uh, traditional belief that external conditions accurately reflect internal realities. That external conditions accurately reflect inner realities or inner states. In other words, I can look at your life and see if God likes you by how much he does for you, how much he does to you, uh, and how much he won't do for you. You might think, well, that's a silly way to do things, but we do things like this even today. Remember, Jesus' apostles were saying, well, this guy's blind. So is he blind because he sinned somehow in the womb? Um, or did one of his parents blind? Uh, you know, were they, did they sin? Is that what caused the blind kid? Uh, Women who've had miscarriages have suffered one of the worst griefs that can ever be suffered. And it is a grief that is not recognized in our society. Oh, it is in some pockets, but most you'd be shocked and horrified at how little support they get. And what horrible things people say, like, well, you can always try again. It's a loss. It's a horrible loss. Can you, um, and one of the things that women think is, did I do something wrong? It, my heart's actually hurting right now. That just breaks my heart to know that's in their head. No, you didn't do anything wrong. No. Life is complicated. Getting on the planet is hard. Most beings 
most eggs never make it. And so many don't survive the, the implantation. And like, this is so tough. You didn't do anything wrong. But Bildad thinks he can look at people and tell if they've done wrong or not by how well their life is turning out. These are the everything happens for a reason, people. We know who they are because they'll tell us. They will show up. I don't know why this happened, but everything happens for a reason. Now, and sometimes people will comfort themselves that way as well. They'll say, well, you know, I, you know, I lost my child to a traffic accident or I lost my job, but everything happens for a reason. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it was a good reason or that God planned it or God wanted it or that God likes it. It could be your child was killed in an accident like the Brentwood police officer this last week because allegedly somebody got drunk and crossed the median and hit them. That's the reason. There's no big cosmic reason for it. That disappoints us. And I can almost hear the hackles raising. They make an audible sound online. We want it to make a cosmic. We want to matter on the universal scale. And I always say, why would you, why would you keep your goals that low? Our ultimate life is not in these bodies on this planet. It might be in a renewed planet and, renew, and certainly renewed bodies and a renewed idea of what and who we are. But that's off-site for now. That's, that's not here. Somebody crossing a median and killing you in a vehicle does not end your meaning or change it. Just relocates it to where it can keep going and doing the right thing wherever the house of God is. And again, that's probably not the lesson. But I would like, I would just don't let the everything happens for a reason thing just trip off the tongue. Instead, grieve with those who grieve, mourn with those who mourn. We've looked at that. We've looked at that already. If you say everything happens for a reason and God is in control of all things, you make him responsible for every murder, every cancer, every rape, every miscarriage. Are you willing to look at God and accuse him of all those things? I am not. I believe that we are not alone in the universe and some things out there don't like us, that there is a cosmic war that God is allowing to continue for his own purposes. But I also believe that God will win it when he chooses to. And it's up to us to deal with our creatureliness. Bildad does not get this. Some would answer, by the way, if I um, if I say, no, let's 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 not lay these things at God's feet. Others will say, well, how dare we not lay them at God's feet? He's the one who did it. And these are the angry ones. They're not angry atheists so much, although some of them end up that way. They're angry ex-believers in some way. They, God disappointed me, people. Oh, I get it. I really do. I love talking to these people. Bildad basically says, if there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, take a look at, at chapter 8, verse 11. Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? This is another way of blaming the victim. Somehow, don't know how, Job, but your kids deserved what they got. And the reason I know that is because they got what they got. It's a circular reasoning, and it's really, really harmful. Job responds in chapters 9 and 10, and he says, no, I admit that I'm a man of sin, no one is without sin. Job chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Indeed, 
And Job replied, indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? The one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. Job's very frustrated because he says, all right, I admit that I'm a man of sin, but I don't know what the sin is. So if I'm being punished for a particular sin, but I don't know what I did, that's not efficient. I need to be told, this is what you did. This is your punishment. That's only fair, correct? Why would you punish me for no reason, God? Or for a very good reason, but you won't tell me what it is. That makes no sense to Job, frankly. It makes no sense to me. God is silent on any sin that Job might have committed or his children might have committed. So how can Job repent of a sin and say, I'm not going to do it anymore? Because repenting means you're changing your life. You've said, I'm no longer that person. I, I turn my back on that person. I rebuke that way of life. I'm going this way. And say, I can't do it because I don't know what I did. He then goes into a, a beautiful speech about God and his power. Just want to read a little bit of it to you in chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. The cohorts of Rahab, they had a name for demons and the leaders of demons. Um, Leviathan, um, there is here Rahab. And Rahab gets mentioned also in the Psalms and in the book of Isaiah. Um, it was her way of saying God is in charge even over the monsters, very often the monsters that live in the deep of the sea. God's beauty, Job says, can all of a sudden twist and become a terrible beauty. Why does Job feel this way? Because Jesus hasn't come. You and I are on the other side of the cross. We have a lot more information than these gentlemen have. We now know why God does what he does and how God actually moves because we've seen Jesus. So Job asks for a trial. He says, I, I really need to know what my charges are. I, I, I need a, a trial so I can understand how to repent. In, in chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, it is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Um, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. An almighty God without Jesus looks exactly like that. A God that stomps through the world like Godzilla, randomly killing. Look at it again. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked because externally, that's what it looks like. A scourge brings sudden death and he mocks the despair of the innocent. Now, it's not like from the cloud comes this ha, ha, ha. That's not the mocking. The mocking is by silence. Not responding to the pleas for help. Not responding to the cries of grief. With Jesus, it changes this picture of God. But this is the picture of God they had because they didn't have Jesus. Take a little time to mull that over this week. So we ask for somebody, and this is a hugely important part of our lesson today. Um, he asked, please, would God send me an adjudicator? Well, chapter 9, verses 32 through 35. He is not a man like me, that I might answer him. 
that we might confront each other in court, if only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. In the old, old, old English versions of this scripture, the words mean, if he would only send me a day's man redeemer. By the way, the, the rest of his speech is, is in chapter 10, and we're not going to get into chapter 10 today because of the constraints of time, but please read it. It's a beautiful, heartfelt speech. Next week, we're going to look at 11, 12, and 13, maybe 13, but certainly 11 and 12. Chapter 10 is beautiful. Again, no time today. Here we go. He asked for a day's man redeemer. We don't hear a lot about this in scripture. You get some of it out of Deuteronomy, some out of uh, Leviticus. You get an example of it uh, in the book of Ruth when Boaz becomes the redeemer. But what's the day's man part of this? Well, please remember back in the ancient world, in fact, until very recent time, we did not have the luxury of waiting several months for a trial, several years for a trial. And then having to um, go through a trial that could take two and three years. Nobody had that kind of time because you had to work all day just to have enough food to work all day the next day. It was a never ending story. Your life was work, 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 work. And when you couldn't work, you died. You didn't have time off. Some of us had grandparents that never learned to play. Now, I, my father was a very strict guy and made me work, so I didn't learn to play either. My grandkids were teaching me how to play. Well, older people didn't play because there was no time, no time at all. You had to work. These people had to work. So you would, if you, if what happens then? What happens? I'm going to pull some names out of our church, all right? Let's say that Dave Castelli asked me to paint his house. Big, big mistake on his part, because one, I'm not a painter, two, it's brick. But let's move on. He asked me to paint his house. And I quote him a, a price, and I say, it'll be $10,000. And he says, great. So I paint his house, when I'm done, I go up, and he hands me $1,000. He says, that's all you, that's all you said. Now here today, we would have contracts or something, or if you're got a brain in your head, you've got contracts. What are they going to write on? Not the common everyday thing. Rich people, they can carve on a stone. Common everyday people didn't have it. So how, we got a $9,000 gap here. <coughs> Excuse me. How are we going to close that gap? Well, you would call for a day's man, a man to come and sort it all out in one day. Redeemer, because of part of his job. So Dave and I both highly respect, let's say, Keith Bain. And so we, we asked Keith, would you be our day's man redeemer? Now, Keith has to think about this because he's got to give up a day of work. Do they have enough laid aside that his family can still eat? He also has to be a man that both Dave and I respect. Good news, he is. But he also has to be a man who is willing to take a hit. Because at the end of the day, literally, that's not the expression, oh, at the end of the day. No, when sundown comes, if Dave and I have not agreed somewhere to meet on this, Keith, by merely standing there to be our day's man, 
has agreed to take and make up the difference. This is a Mesopotamian thing. We're learning more about this as more and more of the scrolls are getting found, uh, scrolls, tablets are being um, translated out of the British Museum because uh, the British used to like to tour the world and steal it and bring it home, put it in the museums. Wasn't me. Anyway, we're finding more and more about this and even about posture. The Daysman Redeemer would stand between them. And in later years, you'd go back and forth to talk to them and interrogate them in front of the assembled community. But in early days, and you can't see my arms too much here, but stretch out his arms and put one hand on one and one on the other, as I am your friend, and because of me, you two are friends, and you will find a way to get together. That posture reminds you of anything. Well, it should. It should. Because it's Jesus. But before we get there, I just want you to know that as you go through this, we're going to have to replace some pictures in our head. In chapter 10, Job lays out his case and the hopelessness he feels. And he speaks of the kind of God I heard preached when I was a boy. I've heard preached in fundamentalist churches. I've heard preached an old black and white video of Billy Sunday and um, the, even Catholic priest on the, on the radio. And it was harsh and hellfire, and he just can't wait to destroy you evil people. And the shouty, the shouty preachers, they're all through here. And they've railed at us, freak, uh, frail, immoral failures. And they say that's what God is like, but God's not a dragon. God is not a snake. And neither is God a timid bunny. And there are churches that try to make him a timid little bunny. Others that still try to make him a dragon. No, we need to slow down and remember what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 13. Yes, the love chapter. In verse 12. In fact, I'm, I'm just going to turn there. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. You've already got it up, probably. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Paul telling us, hey guys, we're not going to get it all. We're not going to understand it all. It's just a poor reflection around us. One day, again, I love that farther along, that, that song. We, we, we'll, we'll get more, but not here. We'll get answers, but not here. The day's man stood as a mediator. And in fact, some of the later English translations changed from Days Man Redeemer to mediator. If I could find a mediator to mediate between me and God. Well, that word, the Hebrew, the Greek version of that Hebrew word is only found one time in the New Testament, just one time. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter two, verse five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. He stretched out his hands. And when God and man could not come together because of the weight of our sins and the power of his righteousness, 
One stood between us and put his hands on both and bridged eternity and time, the world and beyond the physical. A perfect, perfect bridge. He had to pay the difference too because we were not able to close that gap. So he paid for our sins. No wonder he is so highly revered in scripture and in our hearts. No wonder we put his name on our building, but also as our identity. I'm Patrick. I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you. I'm sure many of you, if not 99.5% of you, are already believers that are watching this. Hebrews chapter 4, I'll close with this, these two passages. Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 16. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone, now remember, a priest stands between you and God. There we go. That cross figure again. Since has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find help, grace to help us in our time of need. And then moving on just a bit, a couple pages probably in your Bible to chapter 7 and verses 26 and 7. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not have to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. It's almost unfair to Job at this stage for us to jump forward. But I want you to know the cries that Job had were answered in Christ. And the God he'd been told about isn't the God who is. For that same book we just read from, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the express image of God. If you want to know what God looks like, don't listen to the shouty preachers or the fluffy bunny preachers. Listen to Jesus. If you want to know what he thinks like, listen to Jesus. If you want to know how he treats people, watch Jesus. Live in the Gospels. Live around Jesus. You won't get all the answers, but you'll be with the one who has them. God bless.